Hi, I'm a higher ed CMO and I have a confession to make. I have been working higher ed for almost two decades and until I reached sort of a senior level of leadership, I didn't really understand how vulnerable these positions are. There are so many ways that we can be exited from an organization. Um, if enrollment goes down, often marketing is pointed at. If there's a crisis that happens and it's not handled in the way that the leadership would like, we can lose our positions. If a crisis happens and we handle it as best as possible, but still bad things happen because that's what happens, we can lose our positions. We can have a new leader come in and decide that they want to move in a new direction and we lose our positions. We can have a new leader come in who wants to bring somebody they worked with, you know, 10 years ago or at their last role, and we can lose our positions. Unfortunately, something like that happened to today's guest, who is Bryce Hoffman. He was the Assistant Vice Chancellor of Marketing at UMass Lowell and currently is the Assistant Vice President of Integrated Marketing at the University of New Hampshire. And he's going to tell us his story about how he was exited from his institution and what he did to uh, protect his family, uh, make sure that they had the resources that they need um, when he was negotiating his exit, and how he tackled the job search from a position of having recently been terminated from a position. And I think that there's probably a lot of people listening to this episode who may find themselves in a similar situation. And I think there's probably also people who are interviewing people who may be like, you know what, I need to rethink how I look at gaps in resumes when I go forward. So I hope you enjoy this episode. It's very real. It's very vulnerable. And I want to start out by just thanking Bryce for being honest and sharing his experience with us. Welcome to Confessions of a Higher Ed CMO, the podcast designed for higher education marketers. I'm your host, Jamie Hunt, and I am so excited to have this opportunity to share insights and inspiration. With Confessions of a Higher Ed CMO, I'm designing a different kind of podcasting experience. With each episode, I'll be bringing in a guest for a deep dive into the challenges and joys we all face in higher education marketing. After each episode, you can join the conversation on Twitter by using the hashtag HigherEdCMO. I would love to see this become like a book club, but for a podcast. And be sure to follow me on Twitter at, at @jamiehuntimc. That's J-A-I-M-E-H-U-N-T-I-M-C for more opportunities to connect. We're here today to talk to Bryce about a recent experience that you had being let go from UMass Lowell, where you were the AVC of marketing. And at a high level, can you tell me a little bit about your time there? Yeah, I'm happy to. Well, first, let me say I'm so excited to be a guest on your podcast. I'm a listener and a fan, and I think it's a wonderful resource for people in our industry and in these CMO and CMO adjacent roles. So, yeah, my time at UMass Lowell was was really pretty great up until it wasn't, but I arrived in 2014 and it really was a campus on the move. It was building buildings, enrollments were climbing. We were ambitious. Everybody was 
excited about the future of the institution. And I, I came in to sort of reinvent and bring maturity to the marketing part of the organization. Like a lot of departments, university relations came from a legacy of having been a publications and a press release, kind of a service shop. And we were making that transition that everybody's on different steps of making toward being an integrated marketing operation. So I was brought in to unite three different departments into this integrated marketing, and I installed project management. We began doing national campaigns, regional campaigns, and we were seeing our enrollments climb, and it was a really special time. We even we were able to make our peer reputation score go up, not by a lot, but any movement there is, is so precious. That's a hard needle to move, for sure. Yeah, it really is. And so we had such a great thing going, but then, you know, COVID hits and the demographic cliff becomes more difficult and things got a little more challenging. And then we started to go through a leadership transition. So our chancellor retired. This was expected. This was the end of a long and illustrious career and her contract ended and and she knew she wasn't going to do another contract. But what was unexpected was that my boss decided to retire at the same time. So we were missing our vice chancellor and our chancellor. So we had a new chancellor come in who was from within the organization. She wasn't an outside hire, but she had different ideas about what she wanted to do. And she had, this was her first big role to fill, was the vice chancellor for university relations. I had been number two for going on five years by the time this search got going. And everybody on campus knew that I was going to be a candidate in this search. That I'm not saying I felt entitled to it, but I felt entitled to a shot. And I was selected to interview for the role. I heard from multiple people that I had done very well in the interview, and including a very long letter from one of the members of the search committee who, who was just impressed with what I had to say. And then I didn't hear anything for three weeks. This is in October into November of 2022. And then what happened? Then I got a text. Hmm. And the text was very short. I still have it. I won't do it word for word, but the substance of it was, uh, I was from my interim boss, who was the vice chancellor for advancement and the interim vice chancellor for university relations. And it said, will you meet me at Human Resources at 2 p.m.? And how much notice did you get? Less than an hour. Wow. What was your reaction when you got that text message? What thoughts were going through your mind? I went into over-analysis mode because I couldn't square what was looking at me in the face with what I thought my trajectory was at this institution. Mm. Three weeks earlier, I had interviewed for a promotion, but I have let people go. And the voice in the back of my head was saying, this is how you let people go. Mm. You know, nothing good happens at human resources at two o'clock with no notice. No, no, nothing. <laughs> it's not going to be a cake and a birthday party usually. No, unfortunately. But the part of my mind that wanted to rationalize that something else was happening was, oh, maybe there's a reorg they want to read me into, or maybe they just want to tell me face to face that I'm not going to go to the final part of the search. But 
the more sensible part of me was like, this is not going to be good, whatever it is. So I, I took a couple of laps around the building. It's cold outside. It's November in Massachusetts. And I tried to get my thoughts together and walk in prepared for anything to happen. And what happened? So the office I had to go to is at the end of a long hallway. I didn't know what I was walking into, but it, it didn't feel good. But when I got there, they sort of sat down and, and they were already there ready for me, the head of human resources. And my interim supervisor was the one who talked. And he said, Bryce, we brought you here today because we want to let you know that you're not going to be advanced as a finalist for this the, the vice chancellor search. And in, for just an instant, I relaxed. Uh. And I thought, oh, this is all this is. <laughs> this is a courtesy. I don't know why they brought me to human resources for it. But, but then he didn't stop talking. Mm. And the next thing he said was, and we are going to separate you from employment and next Friday will be your last day on campus. Wow. How did you maintain your composure in that moment? I was in shock more than I wanted to lose my composure and my mind was going a mile a minute. The main thing I wanted to know was why. And I asked that question multiple times, but I've also been in those human resource conversations enough times to know that you're not going to get a satisfying explanation in the room. But I had had eight years of exceeds expectations reviews. I had done everything I thought the university wanted me to do, and I thought I had done it well. And I thought I had the, and I still believe that I had the respect and appreciation of my colleagues in my department and, and in other departments. So it was a big shock to try to process what was happening in that moment. And I remember just saying over and over again, I don't understand. I don't understand. Why is this happening? And I said, how do I go from interviewing for a promotion three weeks ago to being out of a job just like that. So what I was told, the official explanation, was that they had reviewed university relations after my supervisor's retirement. New chancellor wants to make a change, that she feels that a change is needed and that the new direction they want to move in, just it's not going to include me. So. I ask, am I the only person you know, involved in this? Is this a reorg? And they essentially just said, we're not going to get into any of those things. And the director of human resources, I remember to me, he sounded a, a little like a robot. And I actually, I know the guy, I like him. I've had beers with him. And he said, you know, the purpose of today's conversation is to inform you of a decision that's been made and to effectuate that decision. And that's probably the moment I realized that we were really not colleagues anymore, that I was on the other side of the wall. How did not having an answer as to why affect you mentally, emotionally? It's just painful. Yeah. And part of that is because I think in our industry, it's uncommon for people to be let go at all. Mm -hmm. uh, but when you see somebody who's let go, at least in my experience, 
it's because they've done something very wrong mm-hmm. uh, or under a financial exigency situation. Mm-hmm. And neither of those were true for me. I did press them to clarify whether I was being let go for cause. Had there been some kind of complaint? Was there something I didn't know about mm-hmm. uh, that I could defend myself against? But they made it clear that that wasn't the case, that this was just an organizational decision, that it wasn't personal to them. It was certainly personal to me. And then I started to figure out what I needed to do in this situation to protect myself and my family. That became my next thought. So you had to negotiate moving out of this role and into something different. What were some of your insights about the negotiation process after you were informed about the decision? Right. So in the room, in that first conversation, they know they're not going to accomplish everything that needs to be accomplished. They're, they've delivered a huge shock to your system. You're not really rational. And so they essentially they do what I would have done. And they said, why don't you go home mm. for the rest of the day? So that's what I did. And I was I went home and I was in shock, but I knew that there was going to be a conversation. They had said there's going to be a severance offer made to you that we will put you on a leave of absence for a period of time. And we will we'll talk about this later. So and I went home and talked with I called my spouse from the lobby and she could tell from my tone of voice what had happened. I didn't have to say anything. Oh gosh. And then we just tried to come up with a plan that night. The pressure that I felt was extraordinary. The negative emotion, the feeling of sort of turbulence, the desire to make it stop Mm -hmm. was really incredible. I, I wouldn't have predicted how hard that would be. So I wanted to make this process as expedited as I could. Probably the first mistake I made in the process was to agree to meet with human resources the next day, Mm. first thing in the morning, because I didn't sleep that night. I walked in having not slept at all. Mm. And that was when we got down to what's their offer on the table? How do I feel about it? What do I think is right in this circumstance? And I told them what I thought was right, which was more than what was on the table. And they said, okay, I'll take it to I have to take it to you head home and we'll continue to work toward an agreement that everybody is happy with. Mm -hmm. And I will say credit where it's due. The head of HR who I was working with was an absolute professional. Mm. He was kind. I really felt like he was looking out for the best outcome for everybody, Mm -hmm. although his obligation was to the university and he made that very clear. And I made it very clear that my obligation was to my family now. Yeah. So I made a mistake, but I didn't sign anything, which was the right thing to do. So the next thing I did was get a lawyer. Good for you. (laughs) Good for you. And part of the reason I got a lawyer was because the way that they told me was linked explicitly to a position search that I was a part of. Mm which to me makes it a little bit more complicated than we've decided to reorg. I sought a promotion and then I found myself on the outside of the organization. And I thought that warranted some attention. Yeah. 
And I told them in the room, I'm not confident that my rights have not been violated. Um, and that doesn't mean I thought they were. It just means I didn't know. Yeah. Well, and that makes sense. How would you know if you've never been how, through this before? How would you know? Yeah. So I did end up retaining counsel, somebody who specializes, as it turns out, in executive separations. Mm. She was wonderful and although expensive and an hourly, the hourly rate would make your eyes water, but she was aware of that. And I don't think I used even an hour of her time. Oh, wow. She requested some information from me about what had happened, a timeline, some everything as I understood it. She called me, we talked for 20 minutes and she said, okay, here's what you're going to do. Here's what you're going to ask for. Here's when you're going to send the email and don't tell them you have a lawyer. Oh, interesting. So I didn't. And her advice worked. I can't promise it will always work when you hire a lawyer, but her advice worked and the university came much closer to where I wanted to be in terms of, we were talking about number of months mm -hmm. of severance and how long is the leave of absence? Are they willing to do an extension on healthcare? The things that I was concerned about. And this is probably a good moment to mention. I was essentially my family's sole breadwinner. Mm -hmm. uh, we relied on my employment for benefits to pay the household bills. My spouse was an adjunct professor teaching one class at a time at the university that had just told me I was losing my job. Wow. So our only source of income was going to be that, and she did not qualify for benefits. So I was looking at our family finances and thinking, how long can we hold out yeah. if I don't find something new? And the severance process for me was really about maximizing that window. Yeah. Hey all, I hope you're enjoying this episode of Confessions of a Higher Ed CMO. I want to take a moment to thank my friends at MindPower who are making season two of this Involify podcast possible. MindPower is a full-service marketing and branding firm celebrating nearly 30 years of needle-moving, thought-provoking, research-fueled creative and strategy. MindPower is woman-founded and owned, WBENC certified, nationally recognized, and serves the social sector, higher education, healthcare, nonprofits, and more. The MindPower team is made up of strategists, storytellers, and experienced creators. From market research to brand campaigns to recruitment to fundraising, the agency exists to empower clients, amplify brands, and help institutions find a strategic way forward. You can learn more about their work in the world by heading on over to MindPower Inc. That's M-I-N-D-P-O-W-E-R-I-N-C.com. And be sure to tell the crew that Jamie sent you their way. When we discussed this earlier, you negotiated some things beyond financial compensation as well. Can you talk a little bit about that? I think some of it was staying on the books so that you'd be searching from a position of currently employed. But can you tell me a little bit about those things? Yeah, absolutely. So it's not just how big is the severance going to be. I was really worried about how am I going to come out of this reputationally? Mm -hmm. And how can I create other kind of benefits for me that aren't necessarily just monetary? Because I'm a marketer, I would like control of my own narrative as much as, yeah. as I can. Yeah. And I've also been in higher ed long enough to know how tongues wag and how people jump to conclusions when somebody disappears seemingly overnight from the senior administration. Yeah. 
which is essentially what happened. I stopped coming to work. I stopped answering emails because I was asked to stop coming to work and stop answering emails. So in addition to the severance, which was generous in the end, I also was able to get in writing that my position had been eliminated, which meant that I had not been fired for cause. They were generous enough to allow me to tell my team in person okay. that I was leaving and to help shape the narrative around that announcement and also an email out to some of my campus partners who I'd worked with closely over the years. And that mattered quite a bit to me emotionally Yeah, to be able to walk out with my head up and having looked everybody in the eye. Uh, the university provided me with a recommendation uh, that I could use with future anybody who wanted to call UMass Lowell for a reference could speak to this person and they would have good things to say about me. I didn't end up using that because I felt I had stronger references who weren't involved in this whole thing. Mm -hmm. uh, but had I needed it, it was good to know that it was there. Uh, I also got it in writing that I could seek future employment at UMass Lowell oh. if I so chose. I was not barred from ever coming back. I, I can't imagine right now a scenario where I would come back, but you never know. Yeah. Things change. The arc of time is long. Yeah. And the university agreed that it wouldn't protest any claim of unemployment that I made with the state. Is, are those all things that the lawyer recommended that you ask for? For the most part, the university offered some version of those things, okay. and I just worked to strengthen them. The leave of absence was something that the university provided in their initial offer. I asked for them to lengthen it because the first month of it really covered the holidays, and yeah. that, that doesn't help you. No. Nobody's hiring mm -mm. from December 15th through January 15th. Yeah, And then I... In exchange, I made some promises to the university. There were waivers that you signed that I won't take you to court, promises of certain kinds of behavior during the leave of absence period. I won't show up on campus without telling you I'm going to be there. I won't interact with things. I won't make decisions. I won't spend money, all those kinds of things. So how did you tell your staff? That was hard. Yeah. That was hard for me because I'd worked for them for almost nine years. And very closely, we had been through life events together. We had been through a pandemic together. Yeah. Some of them I had laid off during the pandemic and was able to bring them back after the pandemic. So you've just been through a lot with a team when you've been there for that long. It's It wasn't one or two years and move on. I'd been there, the this, I'd never been anywhere longer yeah. in my career. And I'm not a touchy-feely guy, and I'm sure some of them are going to listen to this podcast. And think, oh, that's very Bryce. But I'm a very direct person. And it was always my method to be level with them and to give them the news, good or bad, as straight as I could, right from myself. So I worked on a paragraph with human resources. They wanted to see it first, and that was fine. I understand. Yeah. I told my peers on the leadership team one by one who were universally shocked. They had no idea something like this was going on. And they, commiserated with me a little bit and offered to help me find whatever was going to be next for me. And then I brought everybody into a room. This was their no notice meeting because we didn't have anything regularly scheduled. And I read my paragraph. I, I sort of struggled through it, to be honest with you, yeah. because I felt the weight of what was happening, that this is the last time I was going to talk to this group of people. But I managed to choke my way through my statement that I had to read. And then the room just sort of looked at me and there was this stunned silence of, is this 
is this happening? What sounds like is happening? Is this happening? And one of my peers on the leadership team sort of piped up from the corner and he just said, thank you. Mm. And that was one of two times in this whole time when I completely lost it emotionally. Oh, I bet. Because the room gave me a standing ovation. Wow. Wow. Um, that says a lot. It does. And I'm, I am so proud that they felt that I deserved that. But it was very hard to take emotionally. I, I mean, I just sat there and covered my face. But then there was nothing more to say. Yeah. So the plan was for the interim vice chancellor to come in after me. And I shook his hand. I looked him in the eye and said, okay, it's your team now. And I went home. Wow. Have you been in contact with any of your former team members since then? Oh, sure. Yeah, we're friends, even though we're not colleagues anymore. And there continue to be changes at at the university. And some of them... <laughs> Some of them, you know, are continue to puzzle me, but for the most part, we just talk about other things. I find that when you work with people for a long time, they become so much more than colleagues. They become friends and people that you have in your life for the rest of your life. I mean, I have, I'm still good friends with somebody I worked with 15 years ago. You bond over the shared experience of dealing with all the troubles of a university in these jobs, for sure. There is a lot of truth to that. And as news of what had happened to me sort of spread throughout my professional network, people from one job ago, two jobs ago, four jobs ago, it's really gratifying to see how many people are willing to help. Yeah. And they come out and say, do you need a phone call? Do you want to meet? Can I introduce you to somebody I know? Yes, a, a lot of it is just the feeling of somebody calling you and saying, you're going to land on your feet. Yeah. Because you don't feel like it right away. Yeah. You, you feel very hurt and very damaged. And like, something must be wrong with you because how could this have happened otherwise? Yeah. And a lot of people have imposter phenomenon. And I, I would imagine that a situation like this would just really feed that. Like, I finally convinced myself I'm good at what I do and then this happens or something like that. I, I feel like that would be my reaction in that moment. I felt some of that for sure. And you go back and you question the ways that you behaved in your professional role and the things that you championed and the battles you made have chosen to fight or not fight. And I'm not saying I'm perfect. Nobody who knows me would think that I feel that way about myself. But as I examined it, I really had a hard time coming up with anything I did to bring it on myself, other than there's a new leader with a new philosophy who wants to do things a different way and saw me as a barrier to that. Mm -hmm. So to pivot from what happened, how did you sort of pick up and move on to the next thing. And I know one of the things that, that you shared earlier was that you didn't take that break that everybody recommended that you take before starting a job search. I did not. I did not take a break. And I don't think that I would take a break if that happened to me again at some point in my career, because it's not like me mm -hmm. to sit down and 
let time pass while I nurse my my wounds. So the the timing here is that so my last day on campus was the first week of December, and then you've got the holidays. So I started right away making a spreadsheet of okay, where are the jobs open that I'm qualified for? I was I would qualify my job as a CMO adjacent job. I was not the highest person in my division. I was number two. But my boss for eight years really was an expert and specialist in public affairs. Mm. And I was the person who really looked after marketing and brand. So I felt like I wanted to target advancement if I could. But I have a child who's in high school and he's thriving. Mm. I didn't want to relocate the family, but I knew that was a possibility. Uh, so I looked, I sort of drew circles and said, okay, if I can stay inside the circle where we don't have to move, that's where I'm going to look for three months. Mm. And then I'm going to draw a bigger circle and then a bigger circle. Because the, the big worry in my head was, okay, I've got a couple of months where I'm technically still on the books. I can tell people that my title is my title. Mm -hmm. But if that gap gets on my resume and it starts to grow, I was worried about how difficult it would be to find the next thing with a, with a gap on my resume. Mm -hmm. So that was very much on my mind. So I was trying to pick myself back up two different ways. One was sort of emotionally, because that's happening and you're co-processing all of this while you're trying to run a job search. And we all know, because we've all been candidates and we've all been hired, that your energy comes through in the interview mm -hmm. and your approach. And you have to be the happy, shiny, mm -hmm. competent, upbeat. confident, upbeat person that is going to come in and make their lives a lot better. Yeah. While privately you're nursing probably the strongest doubts you've ever experienced in your professional life, because I, I never experienced that level of sort of, let's just call it rejection, because that's what it was. So that's a, a weird place to be. It's a weird place to be because you're sitting there writing a cover letter that talks about how great you are and you're feeling maybe not so great. So picking myself back up emotionally, I didn't take a break where I just sort of didn't do anything, but I did spend some time forgetting, which was important for me. Everybody who knows me knows that I'm a, a nut for road cycling. So I worked out a lot. I go in the basement, make myself miserable for a, an hour or an hour and a half on the trainer, sweat it all out, and, and then go back to my life. And that was therapy for me. And I also fix up vintage bicycles. This is my hobby I picked up during COVID. And I, I fixed a lot of worthless old bikes and made them beautiful again. And then professionally, I did all the things you would expect someone to do who's looking for a position. because There's only so many roles open yeah. for people like us at any given time. So I reached out to my network and search firms and consultants that I've developed relationships with over the years. What do you have open? What's coming? And I was able to develop in pretty short order a number of opportunities. And I also clicked over the button on LinkedIn <laughs> that says, call me, I'm looking. And I received a few leads that way. It was helpful. For me, the best job board was higheredjobs.com, but it wasn't the only place I looked. LinkedIn, I found to be a little spottier. And also looking at the various search firms that post their opportunities on their websites, I found a few things there that I didn't find yeah. posted on the other boards. And then it was a matter of one thing I wish I had 
been doing all along while I was securely employed was giving my my resume and references and cover letter yeah. just like a, yeah. a yearly checkup because it's yeah. easy to let those things go out of date and then you don't have anything to work from. Fortunately for me, I had just done this for oh, the right. promotion I was trying yeah. to get. So it was all ready to go. My references were all ready and I, I made sure they knew that my circumstances had changed, but they were more than eager to help me find my next role. I think you reached out to me, I think, in, in December. And um, unfortunately, for the record, Norfolk was outside of the ring of areas that, that you were looking for a job at that point. And I'm glad you found one where you didn't have to move necessarily. But spoiler alert for those listening to the podcast. But, you know, like if you had gotten to that point, I would have happily had you come down to Norfolk. But I was in a slightly similar situation really, really early in my career before I was working in higher ed. And I had gone on medical leave. And during the time I was on medical leave, the company was sold and they had to pull me in and tell me, like, we're, we don't have an obligation to you because it's new owners. And so goodbye. And so I can, as you're talking about how you were feeling in that moment, it was just dark, dark days. And unfortunately, it was like, right around the time of September 11th. So it was dark, dark days, just like everywhere. But that feeling of my identity is in my work and that kind of, I thought my life was over and I would never work again and, or I'd never work at that level again or any of that. And it's a lot to wrestle with when you're trying to be confident and appealing to somebody in a job search. And you, when you talked about sort of, there isn't a lot of these jobs open at any given time. When you shared with me the list of positions that you had interviewed for, I think for all of them that were in higher ed, I knew the person that got the role. Um, and so it was like, oh, small world. Oh, small world. But tell us about what you did to be able to get to the point where you are today. Sure. Well, maybe I won't name names, but I'll talk about what types of places I talked to. Because I looked inside higher education and I was open to outside if it was local, knowing that my skills are transferable to some kinds of organizations more than others. I looked particularly at the healthcare industry. So I ended up getting a number of interviews pretty quickly. I think my first conversation with a recruiter was two days after my conversation with Human Resources. Holy cow. And it was a really a great conversation. The recruiter was on the West Coast, but the job was on the East Coast, close to me. It would have been commutable for me at a prestigious, well, I'll just say it's a specialty type of a school, but a very prestigious one. And it was a great title outstanding pay. I was very excited for it. And I, I made it in that case through a few rounds of talking with the search companies. I think they talked to me three times before they passed my name to the institution in question. I think they supplied maybe 15 names for consideration. And ultimately, when they looked at my credentials, they decided to go with a small subset of those 15, and I didn't make the cut. Mm. So that was hard, but you don't hit every pitch you swing at. So I was ready for some of that. And then a search firm I was friendly with called and said, hey, Bryce, there's a small liberal arts campus that is on the edge of your commutable distance. We think you, we like you for the role. They're looking for a vice president for marketing. We'd love to see your application. So they had it the next day. And I went quite far in that search. I was number two. I was next door to the person who eventually got it. And that was a, a long process, a lot of interviews with committees, an entire, more than an entire day on campus. 
And then a couple of others where I had a couple of search firms sort of kick the tires with me. These were out of region for the most part. And then I got ghosted by one. And then a couple others just didn't get very far before I accepted a position. And then there was the position that I did get, which was the sort of happy ending that I had been hoping for. And do you feel comfortable telling us about that, where you are today? Oh, sure. 100% comfortable because this you know, dovetails into the conversation about how do you talk about this yeah. when you're in the, in the interview process. So one of the couple of resumes I had sent out earlier in the fall was to the University of New Hampshire, which was a direct competitor to UMass Lowell and happens to be in a commutable distance from my home. It's an assistant vice president role for integrated marketing. And all I knew about their structure was that they had a new chief marketing officer from outside of higher ed. Hmm, interesting. And I was interested by that. But I sent the resume in October and I hadn't heard anything. I thought, okay, well, maybe there's nothing going on there. But I did know one person who worked there because she had worked for me for a couple of months when I was brand new at Lowell. And then she went to the UNH. So I contacted her, this member of my professional network. I said, hey, a bad thing happened. Do you happen to know anything about this search? And she said she would check. And she put my name in front of the CMO and said, you really ought to look for this person's resume. Now, this is a tip from me to everybody who's out there. You know how when you go in the applicant tracking system and they have all those annoying little boxes that ask you to sort of rewrite your resume? Yep. And you think, I'm not going to do that. I just gave you my resume. Yep. So I didn't do that. I just wrote C resume in all the boxes. They haven't confirmed this to me, but I think that that's why my application didn't make it through their screener. So they had to go find it. And they said, oh, this person was in the pool. We didn't even know he was in the pool. And from that point, the UNH scheduled an interview. And it was an interesting process, not what I'm really accustomed to in our industry, but I actually liked it. I had an hour with the CMO, the hiring authority, right away. And it was a get to know you. It was not a high pressure. It was a conversation. We talked about branding. We talked about leadership. I very much liked the way she handled herself. But I think that she was impressed with what I had to offer. And I thought, well, that was, that was good. That felt positive. And I talked to my spouse afterward and said, boy, I could just really see myself working for her. I think that we'd probably make a pretty good team. And then you go into the what happens always in higher ed is like time passes because it does, because people have other things to do than complete their searches. So a couple of weeks go by and then they say, okay, we'd like to have you maybe do a a panel, like a a Teams meeting or a Zoom call with this group of people who are in the department. So I did that. And then I did a similar one with campus stakeholders. And I thought I was in the middle of a process. And then the next day or a couple of days later, it was really quick. They sort of said, we're checking your references in anticipation of an offer, and you would not believe the jubilation in my house. (laughs) I bet. I bet. Yeah, we didn't have to move. You know, it was just the perfect thing at the perfect time. And so we had talked, you and I have talked a couple of times about how do you talk about what happened to you when you're in the job search? And I would say that early on, especially when I was talking with the search firms, I was probably too forward about it. It was Mm -hmm. raw for me. It was fresh. I felt like I had the scarlet letter on me, the sort of damaged goods tag that would follow me around for the rest of my life. And there was no reason for that other than my own emotional reaction to it hadn't had time to cool. Mm. And 
search firms are wonderful because they've seen everything and they were able to give me some of these individuals you know, that they were working for people who had jobs open, but they were providing me with some really valuable career counseling on the side um, because they want to present great candidates and I wanted to present as a great candidate for them. Mm-hmm. And one of my ways of going through the world is I would never want anyone to think that I've misrepresented myself. Mm-hmm. So I tend to be over precise about things like this. So on February 1st, when I was no longer an employee, I changed my LinkedIn that day, wow. which was in the middle of these interviews. And I thought, okay, but I'm not going to lie. And when I talked with my now supervisor at the University of New Hampshire, at the end of our conversation, I said, I need to tell you that my status since the time that I applied has changed, that I'm in the process of separating from UMass Lowell. There was a, a leadership reorganization and they elected to you know, send me on my way. And she was outstanding. What she said to me was, thank you for telling me that. I know how hard it is to say something like that, and I appreciate how vulnerable you're being right now. You didn't need to tell me that. I wouldn't have asked. Mm. And it does not affect the way I view you or your candidacy or your ability to do this job. Mm. So I know that I'm talking right now to a lot of people who make hiring decisions. That is how you handle that. That's the template. If you like them before, you should like them still. Yeah. That is, honestly, I thought this episode was going to be beneficial for people who might be in the same situation that you were in. But as we're talking, I'm thinking that this should be helpful for the people who are also hiring. And to think about, we don't know why there's a gap in the resume. And it's very likely that it isn't by fault of the candidate, or even if it, even if there was something that didn't go right, or there was a personality conflict or something like that, that doesn't mean that same personality conflict would exist in the new role, or we just don't know. And we've got to give people grace. And I think in the roles that we're in, Bryce, these are so vulnerable. Like these are roles where you could have one little enrollment slump and be out the door. You could have one crisis that didn't go the way a temperamental president wants it to have gone, you're out the door. You could have any number of things. Somebody thinking they want to bring somebody they worked with in the past to your to their institution and they have to get rid of the person that's there to be able to do that. Like there's just so many reasons why somebody could have a gap in their resume. And and I I do think that um I I, I posted on Twitter about once if somebody's applying for a job in April and they started their current job in March, I do want to know why are you already looking to leave your current job? But I think we can be really hard on people. And I'm I'm kind of glad that I learned early in my career back in, in 2001 when I had that experience that I didn't do anything wrong. And I had about a four-month gap in my resume as a result of that. And that didn't change who I was or what I offered to employers, just like this situation didn't change that for you. That's exactly right. And like you said, it's to be in marketing and higher education is much more vulnerable than it used to be. I mean, we all looked like geniuses when there were more students every year and we could all enroll the classes that we wanted. But at least in the Northeastern United States, that's getting tougher and tougher. The demographic cliff is upon us. We have 
skepticism about the value of a college degree. We have the highest concentration of four-year institutions in the country where I am. Yeah. And everybody is super hungry to meet those enrollment numbers, spending more, trying new things. It's a very dynamic environment. And in some ways, it's, it's really invigorating to be in a place where your work really, truly matters yeah. to, the, to the future of the institution. But I think it's very easy and very tempting for a leader to say, I think the problem that we have is marketing. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that that sort of stems a little bit from everybody thinks they know how to do marketing. So it's like, well, I wouldn't do it the way that, that Jamie's doing it. So Jamie must be doing it wrong and sort of discounting that two decades of experience doing it because you think it's easy or you think, oh, everybody knows how to market. Yeah, it, it's a tough, we're in tough positions. And I, I think about in the private sector, CMOs are, and marketing people are just as, as vulnerable as we are. And so it's like, why did I choose this profession? I don't know. <laughs> but, <laughs> Well, I feel lucky that ultimately I was hired by a CMO who came from industry from outside of higher education where somebody who had my, you know, what happened to me is not that unusual. Yeah. It didn't occur to her that that would be a problem in higher ed, or if it did occur to her, then she was able to look past it. I think one thing that was hard for me in the job search, though, was I think to be a good candidate for any position, you have to get really emotionally invested in it. Mm-hmm. And the hours of preparation to be the best candidate in their pool can sometimes be really extraordinary. And I don't know any other way, though, to be a candidate in the search than to be all in. Yeah. And it's hard for your family, though, because you're like, well, if I get this one, we're moving to Minnesota. (laughs) You know, I've got a teenager who doesn't want to move to Minnesota. Yeah. I don't blame him being from Minnesota. (laughs) And there's a lot of, where in Minnesota? Minneapolis. Oh, okay. So that's where we were going to be if at this <laughs> position had worked out, but it, it didn't. So that was okay. <laughs> you dodged um, a bullet. But you have these conversations. Okay, well, are we going to have to sell the house? Are we going to have to do this and that? Yeah. And you you participate in a lot of alternate futures for yourself. And it's very unsettling, but it's also on some levels kind of exciting. So I don't know where I was going with that. I just thought I'd say it. <laughs> <laughs> so what tips would you give to someone going through the job hunt process after a termination? So in addition to just generally making sure that your your network and your sort of application materials haven't atrophied over the years, and if they have, maybe pay a little attention, give them a little cleanup. I found that we all hear from search firms. Mm-hmm. I talk to them even when I'm not interested in the role. Mm-hmm. I will try to at least hear what they have to say, make sure they know who I am. And it's it's not because I'm always looking for the next thing. It's because I want that robust network mm-hmm. of people who know who I am. If I can help them, if I can help them find somebody who is looking for another role right now, so much the better. Yeah, They were some of my best resources, although I ended up in a position that hadn't hired an external firm. And like I said, the, a person who only worked with me for a matter of a few weeks ended up saving my application at UNH. So Laura, you know who you are. Thank you so much. You've been on a million hiring committees if you've had any kind of career in higher ed. So don't act surprised when they ask you the questions that you've asked everybody in all of your searches. Right. So make sure you've got your three-minute narrative about who you are and what you're about. Know your leadership style because they're going to ask about that. 
You want to be able to talk about your approach to diversity because that always comes up and it's important. You need to know how you're going to respond to the demographic cliff. And then I try to take it one step further and make sure that they know that I've read, if not memorized, their common data set, that I've been on their campus if they're anywhere near my home, that I have looked at who all their leaders are and what their resumes are. I make it a point of being the most prepared person in any interview I walk into. Now, this results in them telling you a lot of things that they think you're hearing for the first time that you already know. Yeah. But that's okay. Yeah. And, you know, you don't want to be kind of like a smarty pants about it, but you can find ways to inject into the interview your level of preparation, even if it's just in the 15 minutes for questions at the end, it's always like three minutes because everything goes over. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And the other thing that I would say, for good or for ill, I always told myself I was not going to try to contort myself into who I thought they wanted. I'm going to show them who they're going to get and let them make an honest choice based on that. Mm-hmm. And I take the risk of showing that I have a point of view and that I have a personality because that's who they're going to get. And I, I would rather have them say no thanks to that up front than find out later and say, you're not who we thought you were. A hundred percent agree. Uh-huh. Because you need to be your authentic self at work. A hundred percent. I think I tweeted the other day that we have hired, we've had about a dozen searches in the past eight months as I'm building up my team. And it's been 108 different interviews in that process. 108. Oh, wow. 108. And I've been in many of those 108. And I'm always shocked at the people who are completely like taken aback by a common question. Like, what's your leadership style? Like, huh, I've never thought about that. Like, uh, and then I also, Alan Stein Jr. says preparation is separation. And you can tell the candidates that prepare for the interviews. And it's always, they just get a little extra star on their chart because they've read your strategic plan. They've visited your department website. They've researched you. In my case, they've listened to my podcast. So they're working in subtle callbacks to that. It's not that, it's time consuming, but it's not that hard. That information's all publicly available because we are universities. We're not Lockheed Martin hiding our trade secrets, you know? There's it's just a, a lot to say. It's amazing how out there it is. And it's also amazing how similar the challenges are from institution to institution. We're all unique, but we're not as unique as we think we are in certain respects. No, absolutely not. Is there anything that you else you would want people to know? Oh, gosh. I think... If this happens to you, and it will happen to somebody, one of the reasons I wanted to do this was to provide a template because I went looking for one and I couldn't find one, anybody who would speak about it openly. So this is me trying to provide a service to people in our kinds of roles and to help people puzzle out what to do next. But if this happens to you, the thing that you have to keep centered in your mind is that the person you thought you were the day before you got your bad news, how capable you felt, how experienced, the kind of leader that you saw yourself as, one person's opinion on one day in your life does change your employment status, but it does not change who you are. And you have to go forward with that confidence that you were doing things right to have the career that you had up to that point. And you didn't necessarily do anything wrong to have this situation occur to you. Now, if you're let go for actually doing something wrong, 
that's different. But when you're on the other end of a change that isn't necessarily about you, then you need to believe the best things that people say about you and that you believe about yourself. And it's not always easy. There are moments when you question, but you have to keep coming back to that. That is, that's really awesome insight. And I hope that helps anybody listening right now. I am confident that there are a lot of people listening to this who are in the boat that you were in just a few months ago, because that's the nature of the work and the nature of what happens. And yeah, I I think this will be really helpful for people. And I really appreciate your willingness to talk about this. And Bryce pitched this topic to me, I think back in December-ish, December, January timeline. And I thought it was just a tremendous opportunity for people to see, like you said, that template. What do you do in this situation? It was somewhere in there. And I remember when I pitched it, I said, I won't do it until I have my happy ending. Because <laughs> I was still looking. I was still looking and I, I thought it might work out, but I wasn't sure. And the other thing I, I would say is that you put your heart and soul into the institution you work for. You have to be good at the job to be a good marketer. You have to believe in what you're marketing. And I still believe in the institution of UMass Lowell. I did not spend eight and a half years of the middle of my career building up that institution to have anything bad to say about it now. It's a wonderful school that provides education to uh, a lot of people who couldn't get one in another kind of institution. And a part of me will always be a river hawk. A bigger part of me right now is a wildcat, and that's fine too. (laughs) And they were, in the end, as generous as I think you could expect somebody to be who has decided to make a change. And I appreciated that. And I felt like I was afforded a certain amount of dignity in the process. I wasn't perp walked out the door. I didn't have to surrender my machine. I didn't have to go through some sort of humiliation. It was just a change that they wanted to make. And we talked about how to make that happen. And and it happened. And I didn't like it. I didn't agree with it. But I cannot really fault how they went about it beyond the fact that I think that there was a better decision they could have made overall. Yeah. Well, I really appreciate your openness, your candor, your honesty, your vulnerability. And I remember when you messaged me that you got a job and I was like, oh my God, that was so fast. (laughs) That was awesome. I was so happy for you. I was extremely fortunate. And I will say that it is so far a fantastic new opportunity. We are building something special at the University of New Hampshire, and I'm so proud to be a part of it. They're lucky to have you. So if people want to find you and and maybe say, hey, can I pick your brain about what you did? Where can they find you? They can find me on LinkedIn. I keep a pretty low profile on social media other than that. But I'm Bryce, Bryce T. Hoffman on LinkedIn. And I'd be happy to privately talk with anybody who's concerned about the situation they're in or who just wants to add to their network. I'm game for all of it. I think that in our industry, we have to create community too. I absolutely agree. And if you want to connect with me, I'm always happy to tell you about job opportunities that I'm aware of. You know, we we get those headhunter emails and, and phone calls now and then and happy to share any insights or connections to people in my network after 
20 years in this industry. I know people all over the place, so I'm happy to help make connections. And you can find me on Twitter at Jamie Hunt IMC, J-A-I-M-E-H-U-N-T-I-M-C. I'm also on LinkedIn and Jamie Hunt. And I hope that you will have some conversation about this episode on either of those channels using the hashtag HigherEdCMO. And thank you again, Bryce. And for those of you listening and gainfully employed in higher ed, let's go bust some silos. Hey, y'all. Zach here from Enrollify. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Confessions of a Higher Ed CMO with Jamie Hunt. If you like this episode, do us a huge favor and hit that follow and subscribe button below. Furthermore, if you've got just two minutes to spare, we would greatly appreciate you leaving a rating and a review of this show on Apple Podcasts. Our podcast network is growing by the month, and we've got a plethora of marketing, admissions, and higher ed technology shows that are jam-packed with stories, ideas, and frameworks that are all designed to empower you to become a better higher ed professional. But Enrollify is far more than just a podcast network. Enrollify is where higher ed comes to learn new marketing skills, discover new products and services, and find their next job. We're a growing learning community of 4,000 members, and we love to welcome you into the fold. You can access our free blog articles, newsletters, e-courses, and more, or purchase our master course on how to market a university with Terry Flannery at enrollify.org. We look forward to meeting you soon and welcoming you into the community. Again, you can subscribe for free at enrollify.org.